1 Kings chapter 5 is it's kind of like reaching Leviticus in your Bible reading or 1 Chronicles. I mean, if you start a reading plan in January and you make it through Genesis and you make it through Exodus, you may get a little drowsy a few chapters into Leviticus, or so I have heard. You might even get bored. Of course, there is nothing wrong with God's Word. There's nothing wrong with Leviticus. There's nothing wrong with First Chronicles. The problem lies with all of us. As Pastor James likes to say, the Bible is not boring, you're just reading it wrong. So there's nothing wrong with Leviticus. God's word is not the problem, our hearts are the problem. So if you find yourself kind of lost in a sea of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names in an Old Testament genealogy like in 1 Chronicles, or if you're confused about all the sacrifices in Leviticus, then get some help. Use a commentary. Get a study Bible. Use the tools that are so readily available to us these days. God has gifted the church with so many resources to help us understand his word. So if you don't have a good study Bible, you can't get much better than the ESV study Bible. It has a lot of information on the background of each book in the Bible. There's maps, there's study notes. You might get the ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible, which helps you trace the gospel all through the Bible. And then recently, Crossway has come out with the ESV Expository Commentary, which I'm very excited about. I've read excerpts of that. I would recommend that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send out information about all of these resources this week, if you didn't get all those names. So if you haven't signed up for The Vine, which is our daily devotional that we send out Monday through Friday, you can sign up. In fact, there's information in the bulletin about how to sign up for The Vine. And so I'm going to send out some information later on this week to give you some ideas about helpful resources that are out there to help you study and to understand God's Word. I don't want you to be bored or lost when it comes to God's word. My goal, as I said over seven years ago in my resume when I came here, was that I want to preach and I want to teach in such a way that God's word becomes easy to understand, hard to forget, and impossible to ignore. And that's why I often preach from the Old Testament. Because I don't want you to be bored or to get lost when you pick up your Bible and your reading in the Old Testament. I want to preach the Old Testament so that it becomes easy to understand and hard to forget and impossible to ignore. I want you, believe it or not, I want you to come to love the Old Testament. Even Leviticus. Even First. Chronicles, and even 1 Kings chapter 5. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 5. But take advantage of the resources that are available to you so that you don't fall asleep when you get to Leviticus. I mean, it's true. It's even true for me. And I was an Old Testament major in seminary. It's true. Many times people start to fade a little as they get a few books into the Bible. Or as they read a genealogy in First Chronicles. Or 
as they read 1 Kings chapter 5. So if you're reading 1 Kings, by the time you get to chapter 5, it can feel like reaching Leviticus. It can feel like reading 1 Chronicles. 1 Kings chapters 5, 6, and 7 are three chapters detailing the building of the temple. And it reads like a trip to Home Depot. And maybe that excites you. If you're in construction, 1 Kings chapters 5 through 7 might be your most favorite chapters in the Bible. If you like working with wood and stone, these chapters might become your favorite chapters in the Bible. Because it's three chapters of building materials, three chapters of lumber yards and stone cutting and tape measures and hammers and drywall and nails. Three chapters of Home Depot. So what's so exciting when you pick up your Bible and you read about lumber yards and stone cutting and tape measures and hammers and drywall and nails? What do lumber yards and stone cutting and tape measures and hammers and drywall and nails, what do they teach us about God? What do they teach us about the triune God that we serve? Well, this Home Depot chapter reiterates this wonderful truth to us that God can't get close enough to his people. Isn't that amazing? And it's not because God is needy. No, we're needy. We're the needy ones. God wants to be with us so that he can communicate his goodness to us, to bless us and to enthrall us and to satisfy us. God wants to be with us. Think about that. God wants to be with us. People like us. Think about that for a second. And that's what we'll see in this quote-unquote seemingly boring chapter. We'll be reminded that whatever we are going through in life, whatever is happening, we can say to ourselves, I am is with me. I am. That's what Yahweh's name means I am God's covenant name in Hebrew which when you're reading in your English Bibles it'll be all capital letters Lord capital L capital O capital R capital D that's letting you know that in Hebrew this is his covenant name Yahweh God's covenant name in Hebrew in the Old Testament is Yahweh which means I am now technically it means he is when we speak it Listen to how Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke explains the divine name Yahweh. He says, God's name is a sentence. And in his own mouth means, I am. And in the mouth of Israel, he is. His personal name paradoxically invites the hearer to enter into intimacy in his protective nearness. And to stand in awe of him in his eternal being in contrast to human mortality. He is both I am here and I am eternal. God's name, Yahweh, is a personal invitation to us to enter into the intimacy of his protective nearness and to stand in awe of him and not be obliterated because we're sinners. People like us, people who have fickle hearts, people like us, have been personally invited into his protective nearness. 
where we can stand in awe of him and worship. And that's why Solomon will go to Home Depot in this chapter. Because Solomon knows that Yahweh desires to be with his people. Solomon knows that the Lord cannot get close enough to his people. 1 Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God as the Lord said to my David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. So word reached Hiram up in Tyre, which was northwest of Jerusalem up on the coast. Word reached Hiram that Solomon had taken over the throne from his father David, And Hiram and David were very close friends. In fact, verse 1 tells us that Hiram always loved David. So these guys were very close friends. So Hiram reaches out to Solomon in order to keep the political truce going that he had with his father David. And so Solomon sent word back to Hiram and told him of his plans to build this temple for Yahweh. And Solomon requested lumber from Hiram. So Solomon asks Hiram Depot for lumber. Yes, I just said Hiram Depot. Silly dad pun, right? I bet David would have said something like that to Solomon. So Solomon writes to Hiram, to Hiram Depot, but he couched his request for lumber inside of one of Yahweh's promises. Did you catch that? Solomon actually dropped a promise from Yahweh into his request for trees in verse 5. He said this, And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Solomon knows that the Lord made a promise to David that one of his sons would sit on his throne and build a house for the Lord. And Solomon inserts that promise into this request for lumber. 1 Chronicles 22 tells us how the Lord appeared to David and promised David that Solomon would be the one who would build the temple for his name. In fact, it was read earlier, uh, David actually prayed over Solomon that the Lord would be with him. 1 Chronicles 22.11 Now, my son, the Lord, Yahweh, be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God. David prayed that Yahweh would be with Solomon as he built the temple. And so when Solomon writes to Hiram, he slips the promise from Yahweh to David that Solomon would build his throne, his his, uh, temple. He slips that promise into this request. We're going to come back to that idea in a moment. But notice that Solomon wants to build a place for Yahweh's glory, for Yahweh's name. Uh, Yahweh's name in the Old Testament 
it's really theological shorthand for I will be with you. Yahweh's covenant name is really just shorthand for I will be with you. So that when you see Lord in the Old Testament and it's in all capital letters, you can think I will be with you as you read that. I mean, isn't that great? God's own name has a promise tucked into it. And when the Old Testament talks about Yahweh's name, it's not just knowledge about his name. It has the idea of his reputation, his honor, his character, his attributes, his ways. In other words, what he is like, what kind of God he is. He tells us in his own name what kind of God he is. His own name tells sinners like us what kind of God he is. In fact, Jesus' own name tells us what kind of God he is. Jesus, you know what the name Jesus means? It means Yahweh saves. Jesus, it just comes from the name Joshua by the time it gets into Greek and then into English, but it's from the name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So even Jesus' own name has a promise attached to it. So Solomon wants to build a house to highlight Yahweh's character and his attributes and his honor and his glory. Solomon is building this temple so that Yahweh's glory will go public so that others, even the nations of the world, would come and see what kind of God Yahweh is. And we know what kind of God Yahweh is because he told Moses in Exodus 34 after the nation had built the golden calf. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7 Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Solomon is building this temple so that people, the nation of Israel and the nations of the world, would come and hear that Yahweh, they would hear that the Lord is merciful to sinners, that he is gracious to sinners, that he's slow to anger, and that he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. So that the nations would come and see God's glory and delight in it. Now, what is this telling us about God that he wants to be with us, that he can't get close enough to his people. Bruce Waltke again says, in its function, God's name suggests his pragmatic presence. This sense of God's being can be captured in the English phrase, I am who I am for you. His simplicity shows there is no shadow of variability in him. God is dependable. He can be counted upon. Moses asks, what is your name? God answers, I am who I am. That is, so pure in sublimity that you can count on me. You can count on him, Grace. You can count on God. Moses says, what is your name? And God says, I am who I am for you. 
The temple that Solomon is undertaking to build will be a place where Yahweh's character and his name can be seen and enjoyed. In fact, this was God's plan. In several places in the Old Testament, the Lord said that he would put his name in the place where his people could come and worship and enjoy his nearness. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5 and verses 10 through 11, it says this. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. And since Solomon now has rest from all of his enemies... As he told Hiram in verse 4, he knows that the time has come to build a house for the Lord, to build a house for the name of the Lord. So when you read about the temple in the Old Testament, when you read about lumber yards, and when you read about these lumberjacks from Sidon, these Sidonian lumberjacks, and you read about stone cutting and tape measures and hammers and drywall and nails, Don't let it bore you. Let it remind you that Jesus wants to be with his people. That's why the temple is being built. Because God wants to be near his people. This whole build a house for the name of the Lord business didn't start with Solomon. It didn't start with David. Yahweh came up with this idea. Why? Because Yahweh can't get close enough to his people. God wants to be with his people. And so here's the good news, Grace. God wants to be with you. Again, not because he's needy. And not because you're cool. It's not because God's like, that guy's really cool. I think I want to hang out with him. God's not needy. We're the needy ones. God wants to be with you to communicate and share his goodness and his love with you. To have communion with you personally as you read seemingly boring passages in the Old Testament. When you read 1 Kings chapter 5, you should think, God wants to be with me. Not, this chapter is kind of boring. God wants to be with you as you pray, as you come here for corporate worship. So this seemingly boring chapter is another reminder that Jesus loves you personally and he wants to spend time with you and that Jesus even likes you. And a handful of nails and a few two-by-fours can remind you of that. So is 1 Kings chapter 5 a boring chapter? No way. It's reminding us of the greatest truth that exists, that Jesus wants to be with us, people like us. When you close your Bible after reading 1 Kings chapter 5, you should rejoice that you can enjoy God's nearness. When you close your Bible and you say goodbye to Solomon and Hiram, you are reminded that God is with you, Emmanuel that he's with you as you close your Bible, he's with you as you go to work and work a job that may or may not be your passion. He's with you as you deal with your kids' homework, with you as you go to their basketball games and their baseball games, with you as you check off your grocery list, 
with you as you do your taxes, with you as you help to take care of an aging parent, or as you try to get the will to get out of bed and do all these things over again and again and again. So when you find yourself bored with the Old Testament, and we've all been there, when you find yourself bored with the Old Testament, when you find yourself grinding out life day after day after day, stop and tell yourself often, I am is with me. And then rub that promise into your situation. Take that promise and rub it into your circumstances. I mean, get it in there real good. Take the promise of his protective nearness and rub it deep down into your struggles. That's what Solomon does here. Solomon knows that Yahweh's promise to his father David was that Solomon would build a house for his name. And so Solomon knows this, and he actually puts that promise into this formal business contract with Hiram. Dear Hiram, I hope this letter finds you well and you made it home safely. You know that Yahweh promised my dad that one of his sons would sit on his throne and build a house for Yahweh? And you know that guy is me. So give me lumber. I need your talented lumberjacks. It seems like it's just a a contractual order with Home Depot. But it's actually a fulfillment of the promise. Yahweh uses this letter to stir Hiram up and to cause him to agree to supply Solomon with lumber so that Solomon could build the temple. It's a reminder to us that God, not the devil, God is in the details. It's a reminder that God's promises are for the mundane. God's promises are comfortable being inserted into very ordinary situations. God's promises are for everyday living, no matter what you encounter. Sure, Solomon is undertaking a very big project, building the temple for Yahweh. And as we'll see over the next few weeks, it takes a very long time to accomplish. But where did it all start? It started in an email to his dad's friend, Hiram. It started in a request for lumber. It started in a business contract where Solomon requested skilled lumberjacks. That means that even in the small things that we do for God's glory and for his kingdom, there are promises that we can cling to. Promises that we can cling to as we minister God's grace to others. Solomon slipped a promise into a request for lumber. Now, let me ask you, where do you need to slip one of God's promises into your life? I'm not saying you can buy a lottery ticket and say to the cashier as you buy it, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory, and then, ta-da, you win the lottery. That's not what it means It's not what I mean when I say that you can slip one of God's promises into your situations. But where might you slip a promise? In your marriage, parenting, job, neighborhood, church? Understand this, Grace. God's promises go hand in hand with our problems. You got a problem that you're facing? There's a promise in God's word for you. God's promises go hand in hand with our problems. It's a match made in heaven. 
If you have a problem in your life, there is a promise somewhere in God's word that will go hand in hand with it. That gives us hope. We're not crossing our fingers hoping that things will work together for our good. They will. Things will work together for your good in your life. Why? Because God promised in Romans 8.28 that all things will work together for your good. So whatever you're going through, and all of us are going through so many different things, that one promise is sufficient for all of us if that's the only thing that we had. Everything going on in your life right now, God is working it together for your good. He is. You can't mess that up. That's a done deal. So whatever you're going through right now, you can cling to his promise that he will work it all together for your good. It's a done deal. Promise guaranteed. Slip it into whatever situation is weighing on your heart right now. Old Testament scholar Alec Motier said this, the covenant idea in the Old Testament can be very simply expressed in the words, God makes and keeps promises. He is not only totally able to keep his promises without assistance, but he insists upon so doing. The covenant idea is that God makes and keeps promises. See, David may have died, but Yahweh's promise lives on. There's an ending to an era, but God's promise remains. And so the passage of time or kings does not void the promises of God. There's no expiration date on the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15 that through him the nations of the world would be blessed. That moved on down to David and it's now moved on down to Solomon and is working through his life. Now, Think about this. How did the original audience of 1 Kings hear this chapter? They were being reminded that there was no expiration date on God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. One day, these exiles would come home and dwell in the land again. Why? Because the Lord is faithful to his promises. Clocks and calendars are no match for God's promises. Clocks are tough for us, aren't they? I mean, man, you talk about being humbled, adjusting the time one hour, and we come undone. Really? Is that it as humanity? All you have to do is, is take away an hour of our sleep, and we're done? Clocks and calendars, well, they're a match for us. They're no match for God's promises. The original exiles had to wait 70 years before they could come home. The clock ticked away. The calendar page was flipped month after month after month, but it was no match for Yahweh's promise. God's promises actually like being underdogs. God's promises love to stare down the odds. And just because God makes promises, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use our brains. Solomon used his brain here. Hey, hear him. God promised my dad that I would build a temple for him. And y'all are the best woodcutters this side of the Mississippi. I mean, this side of the Euphrates. So what do you think? I need lumber and no one cuts it like y'all do. Y'all have, been, y'all have those expensive Milwaukee saws. You're the best in the biz. What do you say? You want to help? Solomon uses brain. We'll hear him bite. We'll hear him take the deal. Look at verse 7. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day. 
who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And here I'm sent to Solomon saying, I've heard the message that you have sent to me. I'm ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servant shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year after year, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. And so this seemingly mundane, promise-laden request for lumber It's meant to whet our appetites and to stir our juices by showing how involved God is in the little things. God's promise was sent off with a lumber request. Solomon licked the stamp, went to the post office, dropped it inside the mailbox, and he waited. And he waited, and he waited, and then Hiram replied. But there's a lot of waiting going on between verse 2 and verse 7. Probably a few months of waiting as they didn't have phones or email back then. So Solomon sends word to Hiram. And that probably took a few months to travel all the way up there. And then Hiram had to reply and send word back to Solomon. Probably a few more months go by. So Solomon is clinging to this promise that he slipped into his lumber request. And Solomon just has to wait and wait and wait to see what Hiram says. And in case you haven't figured this out yet about Jesus, he's in no rush. Jesus is never in a rush. He drags his feet sometimes. Not because he's lazy. Not because he's waiting for a package to arrive at his house before he can intervene in your life. No, Jesus just often has his people wait. He still works while we wait. But he often makes us wait. And what do we do while we wait? We cling to his promises. We trust like Solomon does here. He always said, I'm going to build a house for his name. I'm going to trust his promise. Sometimes God's promises come true in less than ideal situations. Sometimes Hiram says no to your lumber request. What then? No need to panic because God's promises are very comfortable in very uncomfortable situations. We don't like awkward situations, do we? We don't like awkward relationship situations, but God's promises don't mind plopping down into those situations and doing their thing. So God's promises are very comfortable in very uncomfortable situations. They often come true in less than ideal circumstances. But Yahweh's promise did come to pass for Solomon because Hiram agreed. And so the passage is teaching us that Yahweh's promise will prove true in spite of all efforts by human beings to sabotage it. What hope that should give us. Even if Hiram had said no to Solomon's request, Yahweh's promise would have still come true just some other way. Somebody else would have provided the lumber. And that gives us hope that even when we cling to God's promises and our situations don't turn out the way that we envisioned or the way that we hoped or the way that we thought, nothing can thwart God's promises. 
Listen, there will be times when you find yourselves in situations where you cling to a promise in God's word and things pan out in a way that you find desirable, in a way that you like. But there will also be times when you cling to a promise in God's word and things don't pan out the way that you desire. They don't pan out the way that you want. Hiram says no to your lumber request. But you can still have hope because nothing can stop God's promises. In some way and in some time, God will answer. And in the end, you will still be able to say that God's promises are true and they're trustworthy. Even when things don't go the way that you want. You can always say with confidence, whatever you're going through, I am is with me. And so as each log was unloaded off of Hiram's boats, that too was a reminder that Yahweh was with them. Every time Solomon sent a check to Hiram to pay for the lumber that would eventually become the temple, it was a reminder that Yahweh was with them. And clearly the Lord was with Solomon because of the workforce that he had to manage. Solomon is going to need some more of that Yahweh I am with you wisdom. Look at verse 13. Look what Solomon is dealing with here. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men, and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. There would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gebel did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. In verse 12, Yahweh gave Solomon wisdom the text says, as he promised him. And so Solomon knows that he's able to do what he does only because Yahweh kept his promise to give him that wisdom. And that's why Solomon is such a great leader and a great administrator here. Because Yahweh was with him and Yahweh kept his promise to give him wisdom. And that's why Solomon enlists a draft and he has men working in one month shifts. Keeps everyone happy. That's wisdom. And his administrative wisdom is proof that God keeps his promises. The Lord kept his promise to give Solomon wisdom because the Lord's reputation and his name is wrapped up in the promises that he made all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 15. God insists on blessing this world through Abraham and his seed. He insists on his glory going public. He insists on his glory being seen and delighted in. And Yahweh continued this passion for his glory through David. And now Solomon is swept up in the Lord's insistence that he will bless the nations through one man. And so all that's happening here in 1 Kings 5 with the temple is pointing us to Jesus, God's son, the temple, as Jesus said, You destroy it and I'll rebuild it in three days. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the temple of God's presence with us, his protective nearness, his pragmatic presence. So Yahweh continues that here in 1 Kings with Solomon. 
Solomon is now the funnel of redemption until the time when God's own son becomes the one man through whom the whole world will be blessed. As the slaughtered lamb, Jesus will purchase and preserve his church, which is now the temple, his people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue, as Revelation 5.9 tells us. And so what's happening here in 1 Kings chapter 5 is really looking forward to Revelation 5. It's anticipating Revelation 5. 1 Kings chapter 5 is getting us ready for Revelation chapter 5, every nation, race, tribe, and tongue business. Every hammer, every nail, every stone that was cut, every tree that was shipped down from Tyre was proof that God wants to be with his people and it was all pointing toward the new earth. It was all looking forward to the day when all nations would come and enjoy God's nearness. One day, all of God's elect people that he redeemed out of every nation, race, tribe, and tongue will come and worship and enjoy God's presence on the new earth. 1 Kings chapter 5, whether you knew it or not, is trying to get you ready for that. 1 Kings chapter 5, when you read it up and you're like, oh, what am I going to get out of this? is trying to prepare your heart for that day when we are with God on the new earth, enjoying his nearness. 1 Kings chapter 5 is trying to get you excited about that. Sneaky little 1 Kings chapter 5. Though seemingly boring on the surface, sneaky and crafty little 1 Kings chapter 5 is trying to whet your appetite for the new heavens and the new earth where you will be with God forever, enjoying his nearness, enjoying his presence. And even in the new heavens and the new earth, you'll still say, I am is with me. How is all this possible? Because Jesus, God's beloved son, tabernacled among us. He came to live and die in our place. It's possible because Jesus lived a perfect life and died in our place for our sins. It's possible because Jesus loves sinners. And he welcomes them, people like us, into his protective nearness. Where we can come and stand in awe of him. You are welcome there. Come and enjoy his presence and be awestruck that he loves sinners, even you. Can you believe that? Jesus loves you. Do you ever doubt that you are loved by God? Do you ever stay away because you think he's mad at you? That was Martin Luther. Martin Luther used to go into church and there was a picture of Jesus sitting on a rainbow with a sword coming out of his mouth and the veins in his forehead were popping out because God was so angry at sinners. And Luther grew up thinking, that's what God is like and I don't want to be around him. Is that your view of God? Then Luther was changed. Come back tonight at six o'clock in my class on the walk, we're going to talk about this. Just show up, even if you haven't been in the class. We're going to talk about Luther's discovery of God and who he is. Is that your view of God? Sword coming out of his mouth, veins popping in his forehead because he's so mad at you? 
If that's your picture of God, I've got a cure for you. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 5. Turn to that seemingly boring chapter. When you feel like God is mad and upset with you and disgusted with you, turn to 1 Kings chapter 5 and be reminded of Jesus. Be reminded that God is with us. Emmanuel, be reminded that God wants to be with you. That you are welcome in his protective nearness. That you are welcome to experience his pragmatic presence. So come and enjoy his presence and be awestruck that he loves sinners. He even loves you. He even likes you, if you can believe that. He's promised it. Alec Motier says, promises, promises, we say mockingly, when we know or suspect that the promise is not going to be kept. But when the Lord makes promises, he means them. He means to keep them, and he means his people to trust them as they plan the future. He looks to us to obey his commands. He looks to us to trust his promises. Since it is through faith in the Lord's promises that we are saved, then surely if faith is mighty to solve the great and eternal problem of our sinfulness, alienation, and helplessness, is it not the way to tackle every problem? To look up to our almighty, ever-loving God and say, I trust you? Have you put your trust in Christ for salvation? We are all born sinners and rebels and we are separated from God because of our sin. We've all broken his law and deserve to be punished for eternity. But God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus. God with us, Emmanuel, who took the curse of the law upon himself on the cross. He died in our place for our sins to bring us to God to bring us to God's protective nearness, to bring us to God's pragmatic presence. And God raised him from the dead. And he's coming back again to judge the world with a sword in his mouth. Are you ready to meet him? You can come to him today and find him with welcome arms. Just cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if you've already done that, and you're a Christian, and you are his trial child, then trust him today. You trusted him for your greatest problem, your sin, your rebellion. You trusted him to take care of that through Jesus, right? You trusted him to solve the great and eternal problem of your sinfulness and your alienation from God and your utter helplessness. You trusted him for that, right? Is that not then the way to tackle whatever you're facing today? To believe? To trust? To look up to the almighty, ever-loving God and say, I trust you. He can be counted upon grace. You can look up to God in the middle of whatever you're going through today and say, I trust you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible, out-of-this-world, overwhelming, crazy desire to be with people like us. Your plan from eternity past was to redeem a people 
out of the fallen human race and to adopt them into your family as your children. And we have been swept up in that, God, and we are overwhelmed. And we can't believe that you want to be with people like us. Help us to remember that every time we open our Bibles, even when it seems boring, help us remember that you are speaking to us. You're communicating with us and to us. And may we give thanks that you just can't get close enough to us as evidence in the person and work of your son, Jesus. Impress this truth upon our hearts now by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name.